Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. I want to go through the books, the epistles of John. Um, first, second, and third John. There's, there's a lot in those letters. We're going to start with a video and, and then kind of work through verse by verse, and we'll see how far we get. I imagine we'll get about a chapter and a half done today because there's just so much meat in there. But I'm actually going to end on some social commentary, which I don't do a lot. Bring me down a little bit. I hear some ringing. Um, so I know you're excited about that. I'm not really. I don't really, I don't really enjoy it commenting on that stuff, but I do kind of feel like the Lord is prompting me in light of what we're going to talk about in 1 John. But there are some major themes in 1 John and the epistles of John, and it's, it's fellowship with the Lord, fellowship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, walking in life, light, and love, experiencing His love for us. You know, it's, it's, it's really powerful once you dig into it, but there's some really super solid and, and deep theology in there to go to look at and, and learn and just kind of make sure that you got a good base as well. So we'll slide into that, but first we're going to start off a video. We have, so this video is the Bible Project. I love the Bible Project because they, they just do such a great job of um, summarizing a lot of the books of the Bible, even some of their theme, their topical videos. Like one of my favorites that they do is the one on holiness if you've never seen the Bible Project video on holiness, go watch it. It's, it's incredibly powerful. It's from a finished work perspective. It's from a victorious, you know, in Christ perspective, and it's just really good. But <clears throat> to kick off this series, and it's, it's about a nine-minute video. It's not a short video. Now, here's the interesting thing about these videos. I find myself doing it. You're probably going to do it. It's easy to drift a little bit. So you're, you're not going to pick up every little thing that he says in this video, and that's okay. But I would recommend, because we're going to be camping out in this, these epistles for a few weeks, watch it today and then go home and sometime during the week jump on YouTube uh, or go back to this video and, and watch this video that we're going to play again. I would even say watch it two or three times because it just has so much meat in it that you don't really get out of it the first time. It's not complex. It's pretty simple, but... You, it, he'll say something, and then you find yourself kind of, it's, it's like preaching. It's, it's, almost, it's basically a sermon, but you find yourself drifting, drifting. But I just the reason I'm saying it to do that and suggesting to do that is because on our Wednesday sessions beginning in a, a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how to study the Bible. And I'm telling you, knowing the Word of God is incredibly important and valuable. Having it in your heart and knowing how to facilitate an interaction with the written word to give it the opportunity to become the living word. You know, that idea is just so heavy on my, in a good way, on my heart right now because his word is true and it's sure and it's trustworthy and it's what we base our life on and it's what we shape every belief that we have on. His spirit alive within us, not just the written word, but also the living word within us that helps us understand the nuance of what is actually written and applicable for today. So, you know, 
know the word, get in the word. And I think those, I think those of us that have been believers for a while, you have seasons where you highly value the word. You read it more often, you study it more often. And then you have seasons where maybe you even get a little bit of freedom and you realize I'm not going to go to hell if I don't read the Bible today. And that stretches into a few weeks or months, you know, and it's like, what, you know, you've, you, you've, you're over not feeling guilty about not reading it. And then you circle back around to, I really, I really want to engage in this. It's exciting to read. I want to dig down into it. And I feel like in the season that we're in in this church and this nation and even the world, these epistles are, are really good to pull some you know, foundational teachings out of, but also kind of look at how are we to operate in the culture, in the world as kingdom carriers of the gospel. You know, putting the kingdom first and then also addressing cultural and I dare say even political issues. But, you know, don't worry. I'm not going to scare you. I don't think. So you can, you can turn those spotlights off. Let's leave the side ones on and let's watch this video and we'll go from there. The letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is actually anonymous, but 2nd and 3rd John are written by someone who's called the Elder. Now, the language and style of all three of these works are identical to each other and to John's gospel. And so most people think that all of them come from the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, that could be John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 apostles, or it could be another John among Jesus's earliest disciples known as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, he's now in his old age and he's overseeing a network of house church communities that are likely around the city of ancient Ephesus. Now, from clues within the gospel and from these letters, it seems that these communities were made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus and that they had recently gone through a crisis that motivated John to write these letters. He mentions that a group of people have broken off from these churches. These people no longer acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah or as the Son of God. And they're stirring up hostility among those who stayed faithful to the churches. In fact, 2nd and 3rd John clearly address this conflict. 2nd John is a warning to a specific house church. There are people who deny Jesus. John calls them deceivers. And they're probably going to come looking for validation or support. And this church community is not to offer any. 3rd John is actually written to a member of one of these house churches, a man named Gaius. And the elder asks him to welcome legitimate missionaries who are going to arrive soon. He has to tell him to do this because the leader of that church community, Diotrephes, is acting like a jerk and he's rejecting anybody associated with John the Elder. And so these letters give us a window into the tension and conflict that John faced in these churches. And first John was written as a response to all of this as a form of damage control. The elder assures those who still believe in the Messiah, Jesus, that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. And so all of this helps us understand the uniqueness of 1 John, which is actually not a letter at all. It reads more like a poetic sermon sent to these churches. John says that he's not communicating new information. In fact, almost all of the key ideas and words in 1 John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is really cool. He doesn't develop his ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about life and truth 
and love. And he's going to cycle around these ideas repeatedly, each time offering a little bit different of an angle or emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole. He uses very stark contrasts with simple images of light and dark and love and hate and good and evil. But don't let the simplicity of 1 John fool you. This work is deeply profound. There's a clear introduction to 1 John and then a clear conclusion. And the flowing cycles of the sermon in between these two don't follow any kind of rigid literary design. But there do seem to be two larger sections. Each one is marked off by the introductory phrase, this is the message. And then each is followed by a repetition of images about how God is first light and then how God is love. And all of the ideas in these two parts flow out of and cycle back into these two core ideas. So the introduction is very similar to the prologue of the Gospel of John. It has echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8. John speaks of the word of life that was with God in the beginning. For John, the word God refers to both the Father and the Son who came to bring life into the world. And so those who saw and heard and touched the Son are called we. John's referring to himself and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so now we have a message for you, the next generation of Jesus' followers. So when the apostles share the word of life with others, these others are also brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the apostles. The word fellowship here is koinonia in Greek. It means a participation or sharing. When people hear the message about Jesus through the apostles, that message brings them into a real relationship with Jesus himself and into a real participation in God's own love and life. And so this flows right into the first main section. This is the message. God is light. This is the message of the apostles that the God revealed in Jesus is light. And so if people want to participate in God's own life through Jesus, they need to keep walking in the light, which is a really cool image, but what does it mean? It means, for John, to keep Jesus' commands. And that's hard, so when you fail, Jesus' atoning death will cover for your sins. And then once again, you're called to get up and obey Jesus' teachings. But which one of his teachings? John reminds the churches of Jesus' old-slash-new command given to the disciples at the Last Supper, that they love one another as he loved them. Doing this is walking in the light. Now, if God's light is now shining through Jesus, then that means the world's darkness is passing away, which also means that God's children already in this moment have victory over the sin and evil and death that reigns in the world. And so that leads John to challenge the churches, don't love the world, because it's passing away too. He's referring here specifically to pride and sexual corruption. Likely, these are problems connected to the conflict that was happening in the churches. And so this leads John to warn the churches about these people who have left the communities and who deny Jesus as the Messiah. John calls them the anti-Messiahs and deceivers, but he's confident that those who still know the truth about Jesus are in fact the true children of God, and they are loved by the Father. And they show that they're part of God's family when they do righteousness and when they love one another, unlike the deceivers who are generating anger and strife and division. And so this transitions into the second main section of the sermon. This is the message of the apostles, John says, that God is love. And so God's children should love one another and avoid hatred. Don't be like Cain from Genesis chapter 4, John says. His hatred led him to murder his brother. But for Christians, 
Love is defined by giving up one's life as a sacrifice for the well-being of others. That's what Jesus did. And when God's children trust in that love for them, it changes them. And so John warns once again of the deceivers. This time he calls them false prophets. When they deny Jesus is the Messiah, they apparently claim to speak for God. But John says to test the spirits. If anyone claims to speak on God's behalf, but doesn't focus on Jesus as the crucified Son of God, they do not speak for God, John says. God's true children will center their whole lives on the crucified and risen Jesus, because that's where we see God's true heart revealed. We see on the cross that God is a being of total self-giving love. And that love is what compels Jesus' followers to love others in the same way. And when people meet this God of love, it does away with fear and angst forever. Which is part of what John means by having victory over the world. When you realize that God so loves you, that he is crazy about you despite your deepest flaws and failures, that love becomes the thing that grounds your entire life. This love is what comes through trusting in the crucified Jesus. It comes through trusting God's testimony about Jesus given by the Spirit. And it's trusting in the message from the apostles about Jesus. And when God's love gets a hold of you, it opens up eternal life. It's a life permeated with God's own presence and life and love, and it begins now carrying on into eternity. And so this leads John to the climactic conclusion of his sermon. He says, We know the Son of God has come, and so we can know the one who is true. And we are in the one who is true, in his Son, Jesus the Messiah. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, if your head's kind of spinning after hearing that sentence, and you're wondering, wait, who is the one who is true? Who is the one who gives true life? Is it Jesus or is it God? And John's answer is, of course, yes. John doesn't know any God apart from Jesus. And when he and the other apostles encountered Jesus, they discovered the God who loves us so deeply that he has chosen not to exist without us despite our failures. And this God is so surprising, so unexpected, that John's final words call us to keep away from idols. That is, to resist any temptation to remake the surprising God in our own image. To know Jesus is to know the God of creative, life-giving, others-centered love. This, John says, is the one true God. And that's what the letters of John are all about. Yep. Thank you, Bible Project. Show them some love. Maybe they're watching it. <laughs> you see what I mean, though? It's rich. That is, a, that is incredibly rich, and it's, it's simple, you know, and that's probably the 12th time I've watched it over the past two weeks, and it's like each time, I, I mean, I get, I almost get I get emotional thinking about it because he does, first off, they do a really good job. I love the visuals that you can see that help you kind of stay connected with it. But man, it's preaching the gospel. It's the truth. You really get a sense of this is who God is. God is love. God loves me. God loves people. God calls us to love one another. God calls us to unite in our love for one another and love the world. Why? Because his love is transformative. Ephesians 3, his love is shed abroad in our hearts. And ultimately, that's what he wants us to know is God experiences his love for us. 
Why? Because it brings us to a place of wholeness and completeness in Him. Nothing in this world can bring you to a sense of completeness. Some of you feel like you're, you're not in the right place. And I don't mean what church you go to. I mean your job, your family, where you are in the earth. Maybe you feel like you were born at the wrong century. You feel like you're in the wrong place. I mean, I'm telling you, I've talked to people that feel that way. You feel like I'm not where I'm supposed to be. You're going to feel that way if you get your identity from the world. You must get your identity from who you are in Christ. No matter how old you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you feel like is unique to you, it's true for all of us. We all feel out of place. We all feel like we don't belong on some level. And you kind of just have to realize, well, that's how I'm going to feel in this world. But I'm in it. I'm not of it. I am of the kingdom. And we are of the kingdom together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go home. (laughs) So we'll dive in here. I still feel like it's a little bit ringy. All right. So 1 John, I'm going to start in chapter 1. I'll read the headings as well. I'm going to go through in the um, New King James Version, and we're going to put up verse by verse up here, and you can follow along. But I also, it's, it's short, you know, there's only a few chapters in 1 John. I would recommend go home and read it this week. Read it a few times. Listen to it, you know. I've probably listened to it a dozen times myself, read it a bunch of times just in preparation. You know, I, want, I don't want to be, I want to be so familiar with what's in the text that I'm, not surprised, that I'm not wondering what's coming next. I know what's coming next. Not that I've memorized it, but conceptually I know what's going on in there, that, that I'm not uneducated about what's in there that I can then, be, then settle into Revelation, right? Like I'm not trying to just, dis- oh, what does it say? I know what it says. Now I, wanna, now I want it to come alive for me. Amen. Amen? Amen? And so this might be kind of an exercise in that for us all together. So... It's very short. I would say read it two, three, four times in the next couple of weeks, maybe more. Listen to it, read it, go back and watch this video again. And, you know, you're just putting, look, you're going to watch hours and hours of news, maybe. You're going to do hours and hours of something. Might as well be put the word in you. Because of what it does once it's in there, it bears fruit. Amen. You're not doing it to try to keep God happy. You're not doing it to try to, you know, get God to bless you. He's already blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. All his promises are yes and amen. Amen. You're communing with him. Amen. All right, here we go. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning. You know, so what John is going to do here is affirm who God is and then kind of give his own credentials that he knows this God. Because remember what it said in that video, the, what he's writing is to some people that seem to have walked away from the faith. It's the same warning in Hebrews where it says there's no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain expectation of condemnation and judgment. It's like a lot of the epistles and letters were written to believers because stuff was creeping into the church, especially persecution. Persecution was creeping in and they... Uh, people were leaving the faith. People were like, I don't know about I'm feeling this Jesus thing anymore. I think I want to go back to the, where's my goat? Let me carry the goat down to the priest. That's, that's easier, you know. 
So <clears throat> that which was from see, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. I mean, basically, he's painting a picture that sensually, all five senses, we have interacted with who that is from the beginning concerning the word or the word or the logos. Now, remember over in John, the, the gospel of John, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's kind of a throwback to that. The word word in the Greek is the word logos, L-O-G-O-S. It's where we get the word logic from. It's where we get uh, conceptual thinking from. And in a certain sense, the ancient Greeks looked at the logos as the creative intelligence behind creation. Or the Asians or Chinese would call it the Tao. So in the Eastern mindset, which it's interesting if you do a study of the Chinese culture, that goes back five, you know, thousand years, you can almost trace how their lineage, even, even early on as a monotheistic society, a lot of their beliefs mirrored ancient Hebrew beliefs that got corrupted at the Tower of Babel and they went on their way. Well, so when so if you read a Chinese Bible, it says in the beginning was the Tao, T-A-O. And uh, it was a monotheistic society. So the Tao or the way, and there's probably other cultures have different words, but it was, it was this. They would observe, and you know, the Greeks were really good at philosophy and thought. You know, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have TV, so they sat around and thought a lot and just would think, you know. And so you naturally observe, and this is that Romans 1.20 thing that you can clearly understand God or the things that are unseen by the things which are seen. So you can go and observe nature and realize there's an order to this. There's a pattern to this. There's an intelligence to it. There's a structure behind it. It all seems to work together. There's a symbiotic relationship that all of creation is within. Whatever it is behind that, that either designed it or sustains it or whatever, that's logos. That's Tao, the intelligence behind creation. And so what he does here is he uses this ancient Greek word and he says that creation is God and that God became a human. So like the way that God thinks, the way that God created things, the intelligence you know, of his word, it's his word that upholds all things, right? All of that became human and interacted with us on a physical plane. It's, it's incredible. So he's addressing that. He's like, you know, he's giving God's credentials and he's given his own credentials that he met him in the flesh. <clears throat> so verse two. Don't worry, there's not that much meat in every verse, <laughs> but verse two. So the life, now what you're going to see is the word and life and light and love are kind of all used interchangeably, synonymously in this, really all throughout Scripture, but especially in this particular letter. So verse 2, the life was manifested. So he's talking about that which, was, that which created. We've interacted with him. We're reminding you who he is. We're reminding you of his authority and his power. We've seen him. We've interacted with him. We've been in fellowship with him. When you are in fellowship with us, you're in fellowship with him. That's what it's all about. <clears throat> that life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was manifested to us. See, he's talking about Jesus, but he's talking about the life of God extended to you on display, but that you can also fellowship with and interact with. You know, there's a lot of people that put God out there and he's kind of impersonal and we have his word and you can know his word and you can understand him. But it's more than that. You know, you feel the warmth of the sun. If the sun were out there, it's pretty cool. But we actually feel its warmth. It nourishes us. It gives us nutrients. It gives us vitamins. It brings plants to life, you know, in, in our earth. And, and so this life coming from God, it's like that. It's, it's that life that is, actually sustains us. It's what perpetuates us eternally. It's what gives us life eternally is this fellowship coming from God that we have that is light, His life. And so you see, when you talk about these kind of concepts, even when you try to explain it, you do kind of talk in circles, like that one illustration that they had in the video, and it showed life, light, love, and it kind of drew that atomic pattern around it, you know. That's, that's, it's all kind of intermingled, but you talk about it in those terms, and you build a, a more robust understanding. So um, <clears throat> that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. So, in, so what I think about is John chapter 17, when Jesus says, uh, glorify me as I glorify you, and then he prays for us that we would be one with each other. Jesus says, I'm ready to take back up the glory which I had before I came here when I was with you. It, it, you know, when you think about that, you're thinking about God, God's, God's hand reaching to us is not just an impersonal power and influence. It is Him. It's His actual identity reaching out to us to live within us. We are in fellowship with Him. Everything that comes out of Him is Him. It's not just something detached from Him that He sends to us. It's Him. And, and I think that's kind of where the Catholics get the mindset of that you're actually eating the body and drinking the blood and it becomes the body and the blood within you. You know what I mean? I mean, I understand where those kind of concepts can come from because it's such a personal, interactive fellowship with Him. He's not segmented up into forces and gifts. Everything is Him. Amen? Amen. Verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship. And again, he said, fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And the reason we talk about the Greek is because a lot of our original manuscripts were written in Greek. The original Bibles that we have were translated from Greek because that was the language that they were written in from the, for the New Testament, that is. So that you also may have koinonia, which is living, breathing relationship with God and the Father and the Son with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, God is never detached from us. Even the things that we pray for that we feel like we need God to do for us, what we actually need is God as that actual thing in us. God is provision. God is life. God is wisdom. You don't have to ask Him to give you something. Here's the greatest prayer that you could pray. God, be you in me. Maybe. I, you know, that's a little bit hyperbole, but it sounded pretty good. 
<laughs> but seriously, think about it. Just be you in me. Verse 4, and these things we write to you, why? So that you would live sinlessly, so that you would earn your righteousness, so that you would, so that you would interpret the Bible correctly. You, you, notice what it says and notice what it doesn't say. Why? Why is he describing who God is and this fellowship that we have with him so that your joy may be full. So that your joy may be full. That's why. That's what God wants. That's why he's going to go to lengths to describe himself and come here to interact with us so that our joy may be full. You know, here's the secret. When you are experiencing his love and you are in fellowship with one another, walking in love toward one another, and your joy is full, you don't have room for anything else. You're not going to be distracted by what he calls later what's in the world, the deceitfulness of, you know, uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You just don't have room for that kind of stuff. Now, an external approach to Christianity starts at that place. This is the problem. Clean that up, and then you'll be more in fellowship with God. But a proper, a proper light perspective New covenant finished work perspective is you are, because you are in fellowship with God, His Spirit is within you. Honor and respect that first and foremost by loving Him, loving your neighbor, and allowing that to be your joy. And then the other stuff, the things of this world just grow strangely dim. Amen. It just does. It's, it's like take what legalistic religion says and turn it around, and you pretty much get good theology every time. that your joy may be full. And then in verse 5, the heading is fellowship with him and one another. So verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You know, I love that they put that imagery and that poetic aspect of the scripture in there because you could just sit and think about that. You know, for, for you artists and you, you know... <coughs> unanalytical thinkers, non-analytical. Everybody's analytical. They just, but you know what I'm saying. It's like you could just sit and think about Now, you might get more out of an image of God being light and no darkness than a lot of the other stuff that I just described or was written, right? And that's okay because, because what you're doing is you're seeing with the eyes of your heart. You, whatever, whatever works for you, so that your the eyes of your heart engage God and you're enjoying that fellowship with Him, knowing that it will result in transformation for you if you sit within that and make that primary for your life. You can sit and just think about it, look at a picture. That's why I value artists and, and all that. Um, Linda painted, a, a sh Linda back there, Stacy's mom, came Wednesday prayed ahead of our worship service to get a word from God, got an image, she painted it, described it. God, go back and watch Wednesday's video. And, and, it, and it's incredible, but, you know, we've talked about, and, and Sarah paints and Stacy and London, a few people, maybe even doing some painting during worship because it's, it's you know, we're all, there's, you can commune on lots of levels. Let me keep going. Verse 6. All right, so now, now he's going to address behaviors. This is kind of, this is, I, I would suspect that the way that he wrote this letter, 
you can keep it on fire for a minute. I would suspect the way that he wrote this letter is kind of a natural expression of how Jesus displayed his interaction with people. So in other words, he, he shows mercy first. He shows love first. He communicates who he is first and, and then opens himself up for the reciprocal love and fellowship and then addresses specifics, then addresses behaviors. The woman at the well, you know, those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Then he speaks with her. Where are your condemners? There aren't any. I don't condemn you either. I, God, don't condemn you either. Yet you are guilty before me. Now, go and sin no more. I, I see the same model in this. In the first four, it's like, this is who God is. And then he addresses specifics. But you have the fellowship in right place first, and then it affects your external life or your soulish and external life. So verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. See, you're a liar. All liars go to hell. We lie and do not practice the truth. All right, so verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, instantly in your mind, what do you think when you think, when you hear, Walk in darkness. Sin. You think sin, right? I'll give you a clue. He's not talking about sin. So jump to 2.9. We're going to skip ahead for just a minute, and then we'll go back. So now he's going he's to talk about walking in the light. Go ahead when you get there. 2.9. Walking in the light, walking in darkness, he explains it further later. That's why you have to read the whole letter so that you get an understanding and then read it several times to familiarize yourself because if you just lift one passage up out of Scripture, you can make up an idea that walking in the darkness means walking in sin. Well, no, it doesn't. This is what it means. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So what is walking in darkness? Hating your brother you got to let the Word speak for itself. Now, is hating your brother a sin? Of course it is, but he's getting specific here. Verse 10. Next verse, please. Just hit the next button. Just do it. He who loves his brother... Listen, he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. There, there's a lot going on in this. There is no cause for stumbling in him. Amen. Now, how do you get to where you're walking in the light, in love toward your brother, in fellowship with your brother, and in fellowship with God if that's the environment within you, there's nothing in there to cause a stumbling. That's what it's talking about. Don't look out to the world and let your interior world be so distracted with stuff that you've put in there that causes you to trip up and stumble over even your own fellowship with God in your own heart. That's the environment that will cause you to then walk in darkness outwardly toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. Did you follow that? He who loves his brother abides in the light. Now, does loving your brother cause you to be in the light? 
No. You are in the light, so love your brother to, to commune and, and experience the presence with which you are in. Because you are in the light, honor that, respect that, stay true to who he is in you, allow that to be your focus, and the result will be you'll walk in love towards your brother. Okay, let's go back up to 1, 6. We'll read that and then we'll keep going. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so does loving your brother cause God to cleanse you from sin? What causes you to be cleansed from sin? Yeah, propitiation. That, that work that's done without hands within you. You place your faith in Him. He puts His Spirit within you. He cleans you up. He gives you a new heart. All of that stuff in whichever order it happens. That is what causes you to be cleansed from sin. Now, we're about to go into something that there's a lot of debate in, but it's important to look at it, so we're going to get a little bit detailed. And we, we might actually just... Yeah, I think we'll just end with chapter 1, and we'll pick up in chapter 2 next week. But So, <clears throat> verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Stay on verse 8 for there for just a moment. There, even now, in... in, in um, kind of the new covenant, finished work, mindset. There are people that have swung so far out of a legalistic perspective that they've swung over into universalism. That's the general statement. And there's a mindset that because Jesus was the agent of creation from the beginning, that once Jesus rose from the dead, he redeemed everything. All man, all women, and fallen angels, and the earth. And so all we're waiting on is His redemptive work to then filter its way into everything, and everything will ultimately be restored and redeemed and saved, no matter what. That's called Christocentric universalism. It eliminates the, the personal responsibility for each individual to say yes to Jesus. Now, in that redemptive work, in that propitiation, Everyone, everybody on the planet, past, present, future, is forgiven. God is not holding. He tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, go into the world and tell them God is not holding your sin against you. Now, forgiveness does not equate to righteousness. Forgiveness is an act that God does because his wrath and punishment towards sin and judgment, Jesus becoming the curse, was all placed on Jesus, and Jesus became that for us, done. He's the lamb. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the sin offering that causes everybody to be forgiven. God is not holding anything against anyone anymore. Now, each person is now responsible to then say yes to him and allow him to regenerate them and give them the gift of eternal life. If they don't, then it's separation from him. You see that? It's a big deal. So what people will say is, we don't have any sin. Because if Jesus has redeemed humanity, 
And they place all the emphasis on the incarnation, in other words, God becoming human, as if that was the saving agent of everything rather than the resurrection. And then those who, by faith, place their faith in Him and experience that resurrection as well. The emphasis is on the incarnation. So God became human, therefore all humans are saved. No, that's wrong. That is now. People are saying that now. And a lot of people are even saying because of that, there really is no more sin. Anything that I do is of God because God is in me and He's just living through me. So therefore, embrace your division. Embrace your diversity. Embrace your homosexuality. Whatever it is, because it's just God living through you. Even back then, those mindsets. This is we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I'll read 10 and go back to 9. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All right, go back to verse 9. Now, this is why it's still so important to understand propitiation, understand atonement, understand the new covenant, understand righteousness. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are no longer a sinner by nature, Colossians 2 tells us that God removed that body of flesh, that sin nature out of you, put His Spirit within you, put His new heart within you. So spiritually, you have been made perfect and joined together with God in Christ forever. Amen. Now, the rest of your being has not yet been regenerated. This body is dying and your soul is caught in the middle, being influenced by what's in the world and your desires and then also your perfected aspect of, that is one with Christ from inwardly is influencing you as well. And so you're living from the heart, which has a couple of different sets of eyes. You're looking back to God from your heart to be nourished and fed by this fellowship and light from Him, and you can live from that, and that is grace. That's His influence. Or you can live out of your brain, look into the world, developing your identity holding on to your victim mindsets, segmenting people racially and socially and economically and all that stuff. Which one do you want to live from, right? Now, if you're not born again in Christ, that's all you have. And again, addressing back those that say they have no sin are the ones that say, well, it's, we're just all redeemed. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. When does God forgive you? He forgave the whole world in Christ. He actually is going to address that in chapter 2, which is like one of my favorite passages. Beloved, don't sin, but if you do, remember you're going to advocate. I love the way they said it in the video. He was like, now be perfect, but that's hard. So God took care of that in Christ. Confess, rise up. Now, confession and repentance for forgiveness are different things. Let me. So can I get detailed for just another couple of minutes here? You all right? All right. It's important. There are two applications of confessing our sin and experiencing cleansing from your sin. There's two applications of verse 9. And the applications are for two different kinds of people. So, those that are born again and those that are not born again. If you are not born again, obviously experiencing confessing your sin and experiencing the cleansing from that sin is a one-time born again experience. However, it does apply to believers as well, but not for continual forgiveness of those past sins. They're already forgiven. It's that so your conscience will be cleansed and your soulish realm will be cleansed of that guilt and condemnation 
so that you, you're at, you're not, you don't have those stumbling blocks within you. So it's kind of, if you were to look at it in the Greek, there's a, there's a, a tense. There's different past tenses in the Greek for different things. If I drop something on the ground, it's a one-time event. Boom, it drops, and then five minutes from now, it's on the ground. That happened in the past, right? But if I make a noise, and five minutes from now, you can still hear that noise ongoing, and it's still in your ear, and it's still affecting you, that's a different kind of past, and I forget the term for it, but it's a past that happened in the, it's a, it happened in the past, but it's continuing to affect now. You were forgiven, and the cleansing effect of you having been forgiven is continuing to happen to you now. It's called sanctification. You don't get more sanctified. You just experience a continual cleansing of the power and the presence and the body and the blood of Christ within you to keep that stuff, to keep your conscience clear. And, it, and it's almost a mind renewal exercise. If you sin and you come back to God, a lot of people feel like, well, I got to get born again, 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 again. Let me go down to the altar again and again. Oh, I sinned. I'm not sure if I'm born again. Let me go get born again again. <laughs> You've been there. How many have you been there? It's happening all around the city right now. I got a great altar call today. I'm telling you, somebody did no. Stop it. Stop it. You know what I'm saying, though. It's a, it's a fundamental un misunderstanding of righteousness and the finished work of Christ. So, Confess means to say the same thing. That's what it means. It means to acknowledge the reality of what it is. It means be honest with yourself. You know, I love Jordan Peterson's, one of his rules. Is it rule number six? Don't lie. No, it says tell the truth. Like, what is it? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Always tell the truth, but if you can't, at least don't lie. Don't lie to yourself. That, that's really what's going on here. Confession is not you sin, you go to God, you apologize for your sin, He then releases more forgiveness for you. That's not what confession is. Confession is, you, it's like you wake up and you're like, oh man, I, I don't want this. I don't want this in my life, Lord. And so you say the same thing that God says about it. Now, as a born-again believer, what does God say about your sin? It's forgiven. Yes, it's bad for you. Of course he says that too. But it's forgiven. He's not holding it against you. And the Pharisee would say, well, that kind of sounds like you're saying we should continue in sin. Well, Paul said something about that. He's like, no. No, God forbid. Don't you know you're under grace? What? No. You know, it, you, it, if you properly preach the gospel, somebody's going to say, well, I feel like you're saying it's okay to sin. Paul dealt with it too. We, we, we address that all the time. Confessing your sin for a believer is to say the same thing God says about it. It's destructive for me. It's bad for me. It's not who I am. This sin is not my identity. I am not insert sin. That's not your identity. It's not being held against you. It's killing you, your body and your soul and your mind. It's hardening your heart toward God 
That's what sin does, is it hardens your heart toward God, desensitizes you, and might, if it were possible, might even desensitize you to the point where you walk away from Jesus and reject Him as your Lord and Savior any, any longer. If that were possible, people say, well, can you, you know, uh, once saved, always saved? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe. Uh, you know, we can certainly believe in the eternal security of the believer. There are warnings to keep believing. Stay in the faith. Don't reject the faith. You know, that, that, you make up your own mind. I don't, I'm not here to be your authority and tell you what to think about that, but that, that could be a perspective. So one of the greatest reasons to stay out of sin as a believer is not because God's going to judge you for that sin. He won't. He already judged Jesus for it but it's to keep your heart pliable and sensitive to his leading so that you stay in the light, so that you stay in the fellowship. Not stay in the light, but walk in the light. Amen. You, you, you're just honest with him. I, oh, I, I want, you know, I desire to walk in righteousness. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but I thirst after it. My soul desires to reflect who I actually am in Christ. You, you know what sin does to you. You know how you feel. Unless your conscience and your heart are seared, then you can go on and enjoy it, but it's still killing you. And, and really, when you, when you really taste of the Lord, you realize that stuff is not satisfying. It is not fulfilling. It, it's, it's, ugh. That's a Greek word. Ugh. <laughs> And, and legalistic Christianity has placed so much emphasis on the behavior and not on the fellowship that we have with God. Amen. And that's why we, I, want, always, I always want to focus on your fellowship with Him, who you are in Him. Now, I promised you some social commentary. <laughs> Dare I? You can pull that down for just a minute. All right, so let me, let me throw this out. We're looking at where we are. We got an election season coming up. We have a health issue in the land. I'm listening to certain pastors. I'm listening to friends. There are pastors out there that are speaking to these issues. I don't listen to a whole lot of preaching, but I am listening to conversations right now over these kinds of things. I'm not, so what I'm about to go into, I'm not telling you how to think about anything. I'm kind of revealing to you what, what I've been listening, the questions that I've been looking at, and maybe make some suggestions that we, as fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, can reach toward one another in our differences to, to, to reinforce unity. That would be my goal in looking at these kinds of things, because it is by our love for one another that they know that we follow Jesus, and it is our love for one another that causes us to reflect the glory of God that He is in us, and then our love for one another in unity expressed toward the world compels the world to believe that God sent Jesus for them too and that loves them too. That's John 17. So you're looking at this, let's kind of make it relevant in political election season, the virus that's you know, going through. Regardless of where you stand on the science of it, regardless of where you stand, here are some major mindsets about it. In one camp, We'll talk about this country. In one camp, you have people that are like, give me liberty or give me death. I Don't make me wear a mask. Don't tell me what to do. I'd rather die than conform to your control. 
give me liberty or give me death. And then the other side says, well, I'd kind of just like to live. <laughs> so it makes sense to me to put a mask on. It's not that big of a deal. Why are you so, so flag-waving over there? You know, just, can't we just live? Can't we just all get along? I'm going to wear a mask. Why don't you wear a mask? We'll protect each other that way. That's the mindset. Now, whatever you think about that mindset, I don't care. <laughs> and they don't either. But it causes a conflict because we look at that side and say, oh, you, we, well, I say we. The liberty, so liberty and health are kind of the, that's what's almost at battle here. This is my perspective. I hope it gives you some insight, right? So you got people holding on to it, right? But then the, but then the mask side says, don't you care about people? There's 170,000 people that have died. What's wrong with you? Don't you see the science? It's like, and so we then, so that's one line. And unfortunately, in general, in some areas, that line is drawn politically, economically, racially. That line, you see people falling on one side or the other that kind of fall into those categories. I listened to a black preacher who is connected with 7,000 different churches, and he said he's talking to a lot of people that feel like, black people that feel like the virus is targeted more toward them. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not black, obviously, but I'm just telling you what he said. He, he, you know, we do know statistically it, it's more dangerous, it's more deadly, it's more harmful for black people for whatever reasons, but you see that. So then you get the political agenda come in and use that to bring the division, right? I mean, statistically, that's what it seems like. Uh, so... I'm thinking, all right, now, then you get into all the nuance of all of the other social issues that are associated with the health-focused person and the liberty-focused person and all the other divisive things. And I'm thinking, all right, let's just start at the top. because So, so then you think politically, right? In general, and I'm making massive generalizations, on the right there would typically be, give me liberty or give me death. On the left, it would be, well, let's just take care of people. You know, my friend Lucas Miles, who's a pastor, is writing a book, and he made this point. He said, the right, and I really even hate to use those terms, but that's where we are right now. The right, so, so you think about what does God expect from us as believers. Love God, love people. And this is, again, this is an overgeneralization. The right is like, love God. Bless God, we're going to love God. Bless God, I'm going to wave my flag and give me liberty. And the left genuinely on the left, as a believer, as a Christian, would say, well, we should take care of people. Why don't we provide health care? Why don't we provide education? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, of course it is. But here's the problem. When we take it out of the realm of the kingdom and we take it out of the realm of unity in Christ and we segment it into the realm of the world, then it becomes divisive. The things that should be unifying that people have legitimate perspectives on both sides that we judge each other. If you're judging one or the other, you're judging from a worldly mindset. Well, no, I'm not. I'm kingdom and I see it because I'm right. <laughs> well, maybe you're walking in darkness and you don't see the love for that person. We're addressing what John wrote, right? To walk in darkness is to not walk in love toward that person. Now, 
hold on to what you believe is right. Hold on to what you know is right. Don't give up on it, right? But there's got to be a higher connection that we elevate ourselves to in our mindsets that we look across the aisle. We look across the economic issue. We look across the racial issue. And we look spiritually at this thing and we say, I want to understand what they're thinking and how they see it. And I don't want to dishonor and disrespect. I have my perspective, but we are called to walk in the fellowship of the light. Right? Now, how do we do that? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit is alive and active, leading us and leading the way, right? Now, that's about as far as I want to go with that idea because I don't want to try to say, well, do this and do this and do this. The Holy Spirit knows. But, but, I, just, but I want to elevate our mindsets to, to our fellowship in the family of God and then go from there. Don't, don't let a flag, you know, I was praying about this. One of the things that God spoke to me during this process is there are no flags in heaven. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no race in heaven. There's no gender in heaven. All of, all of that stuff, all of the stuff that's being used to divide us right now doesn't exist there. It could not exist now. He prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you're incredibly idealistic, Clint. Well, maybe. Maybe it's, maybe it's naivety. But he wrote about it that we be one, that we walk in love toward one another, that, we, that, we, that our fellowship in him is expressed in our fellowship with one another. And whatever we think politically and about all these issues, let's just raise, let's elevate our minds, let's set our, things, let's set our eyes on things above and then deal with those things. Does that, does that make sense to you? You know, and I'm sure there's more nuance to deal with that. And people like Mike Crane back there that are called to the political field, those of you that really are, feel like you're called to that political arena, I pray for you because it's not, it's not an easy realm because you almost have to pick one side or the other. You know, I mean, there's, no, there's nobody on a national level speaking from a truly center position, and, and there are some things that I absolutely will not compromise on. Abortion is murder. The end. I don't care if it's rape, incest, whatever it is. Abortion is murder. That's my stance on it. Now, if I'm right-winger because of that, then so be it, but that's where I am. Amen? Well, you don't have to amen that. You just, okay. Appreciate you telling me how you think there. So there are some non-negotiables, I believe, as a believer, but we're, we're called. So let me land this plane here. I just I want to honor what John wrote about Jesus, about God, about our relationship in him, about our unity in him, our unity with one another, and let that be our identity. Let that be the realm through which we make our decisions. Let that be the realm, even the filter through which we look at other people. Right now, the racists and the bigots and the evil people on both sides of the parties that are using corruption and even to think that there's only two parties is so controlling and gross in general. All, all, those people, how do we reach them? I was talking to Mike, you know, Mike was talking about this video. So after the Republican National Convention, 
you know, there was a video, I saw a video of Rand Paul being kind of attacked, and, and then my, I didn't see this video, but there was an elderly couple, and there was a young white man in this 80-something-year-old's face with a mask on, you know, telling him he was number one with the middle finger, screaming at him at the top of his lungs. Well, how do you reach that guy? How do you, how do you reach that guy? And my mind goes to this. There have to be some Christians in that guy's life that need to go to him and show him love and compassion so that he has an encounter with love apart from all of that stuff to plant those seeds. Now, maybe that's you. Maybe you have people in your life. Now, a lot of us are like, this is the truth. Bless God. If you're an enemy of God, you're an enemy of God. I'm just preaching the gospel and it's up to them. They're burning hell. You know, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like we just, we have our banners and we have our flags and we have our stances. And we don't back down from that stuff. I'm not suggesting we become weak and compromise. I'm suggesting that God loves that person. Jesus died for that person. And I might be the only person in that person's life that can go to them and show them God's kind of love and help them maybe dial back some of that hatred and division. Pray for them. Are you with me? Maybe there are people in your family. And so rather than arguing legislation or arguing issues, maybe there's some common ground in human compassion. And I suspect it might be in terms of love God, love people. Especially if they're a believer that's on the social justice side of the issues right now. Appeal to their, their desire to want to help people. And maybe, you know, see, here's the thing. You just got to follow the Holy Spirit through that. You just follow the Holy Spirit. Because what, what I would be after would be unity amongst the body. That we do that first, and then we deal with those other things. So how can we do that? How can we reach across and, and reinforce that identity, reinforce that unity in love and walk in the light? in light of what's going on in our nation, right? Because it's very easy to just dismiss people. Well, that person's crazy. They're probably going to hell. You know, it's like we, that's how far we go with it. They're voting for Biden. They're evil and going to hell. There are people that believe that. Like, because of who they vote for. What? I, I don't know, man. It's just, it's like unity in love. They're, 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 some of them might be evil. There's evil ones on both sides, right? But love, but love. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. We're going to walk in the light. Amen? Amen? So stand up if you would. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your wisdom. Holy Spirit, we want to yield to you. We want to follow you. God, we want to start with our identity your identity, honoring who you are, the God of creation, the God who loves us. And then our response to you is to love you back and place our faith in Jesus, which secures us forever in you. May we recognize and honor that same incredible work in every human on the planet that has said yes to you. And then those who haven't recognized the potential for it. And how can we be those unifiers to bring people either back to fellowship or into fellowship with you. And we do it through our own fellowship with them. So, Father, we will be your light. 
we will walk in your love. We will not allow hatred for our brothers or disdain or judgment for our brothers or division to be the stumbling block that keeps us from walking in the light toward them. We will walk in the light, which means we will walk in the love. Is that your commitment? If, you're, if, you, if that's your commitment, just lift up your hand. Jesus, we love you. We love you. Be glorified in us. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. And thank you to those of you who support Forward Ministries financially. You truly are changing the way the world sees God. You're helping people detox from performance-based religion and experience God's love for them. We're committed to helping you renew your mind so you'll experience transformation and move forward in every area of your life. I pray you're making this hard journey. Visit my website at clintbyers.com for hundreds of free teachings and articles that will empower you to renew your mind and put on your eternal identity in Christ. I'm especially excited about my tools for transformation that have original music and modern technology designed to help you slow down and connect with the Spirit of God in your heart. I'd like to invite you to partner with Forward Ministries. Help us continue to spread the gospel and develop resources that are empowering people to grow in their identity in Christ. Thank you again for joining me. I pray God's blessings and promises over you and your family today.